take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, beginning in verse 35. I want to go ahead and, and jump right in and read the passage. So Luke 22, verse 35, just a, a little bit of a layout here, verses 35 through 38. Jesus is continuing some teaching in the upper room. Um, after he wraps that up in, in verse 39, they move to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in verses 47 through uh, 53, we'll see his uh, betrayal and his arrest um, in the Garden there. So look with me as I read these verses from Luke 22, beginning in verse 35. And he, Jesus, said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They, the disciples, said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. Then he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you, day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The, the darkness is, is getting darker here at the end of Luke seems like things are spiraling out of control. Even Jesus here says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It seems strange to think about, doesn't it? That there's a that darkness and the power of darkness, the power of evil is in some sense in control in this moment. It seems strange, but I think we can relate with that, can't we, in our lives? Aren't there times where it feels like darkness is reigning? Where, where evil is sort of triumphing and, and, and God feels extremely silent 
that he's, he's not near in ways that we have known before? How do we respond to that? How do we as people of faith, as those who trust in Jesus, when the power of darkness and the power of evil seems to be reigning, how do we continue to walk in faith? It's a difficult question, but I think that Jesus models for us how we walk through darkness with with faith. And so I just want to kind of answer this question. How should we respond when the darkness seems to reign, when the darkness seems to be in control? How How do we respond? How do we walk in faith? Now, implied in that question is is the fact that there are going to be dark times. Just the understanding that that will happen, that life is painful and it's difficult, and there are times when the hand of God either seems absent or even that God seems to be working against us. We've all felt that, maybe in small ways and maybe in, in larger ways. We don't understand what is happening. So I think the first thing that Jesus is telling us is to, to be prepared. How do we respond when the darkness reigns? Be prepared for darkness to look like it's raining. And I think that's the point of verses 35 through through 38. So this is the last part of Jesus' instructions before he heads to the Mount of Olives. And he recalls a time for the disciples when he had sent them out two by two to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So he sent them out. We studied this back in chapters 9 and 10. And he called them to trust him with their provision. He said, go with nothing. Trust that I'm going to provide you. Don't take a knapsack, a money bag. Don't take extra sandals. Just just go and I will provide for you. And there's a sense in which the, we are to trust the provision of God. They were to trust that God would provide. But also this idea that we talked about then, that, that God provides through ordinary means. And the means that he was going to provide for them was most likely through people that they met in these towns. Persons of peace. People who wanted to hear this gospel message and would willingly invite the disciples into their homes. They would receive them. They'd give them a place to, to stay as they entered into their villages. So Jesus says, when you went out, did you lack anything? And they say, nothing. Everything was fully provided. God provided for all of their needs. And most likely he provided for them, not necessarily like Elijah, where ravens brought him food, but probably where someone opened up their door and said, come in, and here's a meal. So Jesus says, he said to them, but now. So Things are going to change. It's not going to be like that anymore. Jesus says, now you need to take a money bag. You need to take a knapsack. In fact, you need to sell your coat and buy a sword, Jesus says here. And he says the reason, if we say why would he say that, he says the reason in verse 37 is for, because I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus quotes this passage and says, you need to be prepared as you go out to be rejected because I'm about to be rejected. I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors and you will fall into that guilt by association. You're going to get lumped in with that and you will be considered transgressors and it's not going to be like last time. Last time you went out and doors were swung wide open for you. You're going to go out this time and doors will be shut in your face. And so you need to be prepared for the opposition that's coming. You need to be prepared for the fact that you're going to enter town and find people that are opposed to you. Be prepared for that. Opposition continues today, doesn't it? It wasn't just then. The followers of Jesus today are opposed. We're not complete outcasts in our country, but in some places believers are. 
They are completely outcasts. But even here, if we stand for, for truth in God's word, if we stand for the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's no way to the Father but by him, that's not a very popular teaching. We are made outcasts. We will face opposition. If we stand for holiness as far as what God's word says, we will face opposition to that. And Peter, who heard these words of Jesus, repeats that in 1 Peter 4:12. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter understood this, and, and so should we, that when darkness comes, this should not be strange. But often when darkness comes, or we have opposition up against us, what do we say? Something strange is happening to me. <laughs> People don't like me for standing for the truth. I'm not accepted by others. My faith is ridiculed. I'm mocked by my friends and my co-workers. The society and I, I live in doesn't seem to want to do what God says. And Peter says that should not be strange to us. And Jesus here says, you're numbered with the transgressors. You are considered an outcast just as I was considered an outcast. We should not be surprised about that. We should be prepared for it. Now, Peter got it in First Peter, but did he get it here? Did the disciples understand what Jesus was saying here? I don't think so. They respond to his instruction. What do they say? Look, Lord, we've got two swords. <laughs> that, that's their, their response. He says, we're two swords, we're ready to go. Is that what Jesus is looking for? Is, is that at the heart of what he's trying to get at? That they have adequate preparations. You know, Do you have enough food for your journey? Do you have enough money? Do you have enough swords does he want them to build up some sort of armory so that they can fight against the Romans? Is that the point of this passage? I think his response here and then later on in the garden shows us that that's not what he's talking about. So first he says this response when they say, Lord, we have two swords. What does Jesus say? He said to them, it is enough. Some people mean take that to say two swords. That's good. That should be enough. I don't think that makes sense, especially in light of what we read later on, where one of the disciples, we know from the other Gospels, it's Peter, strikes the servant of the high priest, cuts off his ear with one of these two swords, and what does Jesus say? Put it down. We're not. That's not how we're operating right now here. So I don't think Jesus is saying, get some swords ready. I think this is similar to, to John 4 is what came to my mind. So Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And the disciples had gone off to the village to get some food, and they come back, and they say, Here, Jesus, we have some food for you. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And what did the disciples say? Who brought him food? So they're thinking about food on this level of food. And Jesus is talking about food on a different level. And I think as he's talking about swords and knapsacks and money bags, he's not talking about literal swords and knapsacks and, and money bags. Rather, he's talking about this this shift in public opinion about the followers of Jesus such that they're going to be opposed. And you need to be prepared, however you can be, to, to, to recognize that, that we are going to be numbered with the transgressors. We're going to be numbered as criminals. The disciples have just been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, and Jesus is now saying, you're going to be lumped in with the worst of society, and you need to be ready for that. So when he says, it is enough, I don't think he's saying, it's, it, this, we've got enough swords, we're good to go. Rather, and, and what most commentators say he's saying is, enough of this. Like, like, you don't understand what I'm talking about. 
and we don't have time to go into it right now because time is at a premium right now, but enough of this. We're not talking about this anymore. And doesn't that almost sound like what he says later on in verse 51 when, they, when Peter does strike off the, the, the ear of the servant, what does Jesus say? No more of this. It's just this enough of this, guys. This is not what it's about, and you're totally missing what I'm talking about. He doesn't have time to explain it fully. We think about swords and we think about knapsacks and money bags. And that's why we read Ephesians 6. Isn't that sort of what's going on there? He's talking about the armor of God. But is, is, is Paul there telling us to put on literal armor and take up literal swords? No, there's, there's ways that we fight that are different. And Jesus can't explain that fully right now. But he is going to model it here in some significant ways. So we need to be prepared That's how we walk through the darkness. We need to be prepared. The next thing that Jesus shows us, though, is we need to pray. We need to pray. Verse 39, they leave the upper room and they go to the Mount of Olives. Remember, from the end of chapter 21, it says that every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went and lodged on the Mount of Olives. So he'd go east of Jerusalem and stay in the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. And it says here that this was his, his custom. He didn't stay in the city, but he would go to the Mount of Olives. Incidentally, this indicates to us how Judas and the Jewish officials knew where to find him. Because that's where he always was. Every night he would go there. This was his routine, and Judas knew that he would be there. So Jesus and the eleven now missing. Jesus and the eleven go to this place. It says they arrive at the place, which we know is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus tells his disciples to pray. He says, "Pray, you guys. Pray that you will not enter into temptation." And then he says, later on, he repeats that command, doesn't he? In verse 46, he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice just in passing, verse 45, the disciples fall asleep when they were supposed to be praying, which we can all relate to, right? Why did they fall asleep? They were sleeping for what? For sorrow. I think before we kick the disciples when they're down, we should recognize what's going on in their hearts Uh, they're totally overwhelmed aren't they they're praying with jesus in this garden jesus has been talking about all these things that are going to happen the recent days they've been they faced all this opposition and now jesus is saying that he's going to die he's just told them that one of them is going to betray them betray him he's just told peter that he's going to deny him this is heavy heavy stuff and they're in this garden, they don't understand fully what's going on, and they are just filled with, with sorrow. Have you ever been there? I mean, sometimes stress and sorrow keeps us up at night. Sometimes it knocks us out. We have no strength left. We are wasted. And I think that's what's going on here. They are just at a loss. They have nothing left, and so they fall asleep. They should have been praying, but we can sympathize with them. He tells them to pray that they won't enter into temptation. Is that something specific? I think we've been seeing what's Satan trying to do. He's trying to separate them from each other, separate them from, from Christ. And it would seem that that's the temptation that he's talking about here. A temptation to unfaithfulness or to complete desertion of Christ. A lack of faith is the root of, of sin. And so he's praying, don't, don't, 
pray that you don't enter into temptation, that you don't lose faith, that you don't walk away from me. We have to fight temptation, don't we? To fight Satan. To fight self. But our weapons, again, as Ephesians 6 reminds us, are not are not physical weapons. They're not physical swords. This is what the disciples were missing. How do we fight? <clears throat> Jesus says you need to fight against temptation. Here's how you fight. By praying. You need to pray, he says. We fight like Jesus. And Jesus fought with faith. Because prayer is the ultimate expression of faith, of trust in God. We seek help from God. We use means, but we resist temptation. And we, we, we use means, we resist temptation as best we can. But the only way that we can stay faithful to Jesus is if Jesus keeps us faithful to Jesus. We need him to hold on to us. So we have to pray. And I think Jesus shows us how to pray. This isn't the same as when, he's, when the disciples say, teach us how to pray. But I think Jesus is modeling, how do you pray in darkness? How do you pray when things are, are when, when darkness seems to reign, when evil seems in control? How do we pray? When, when I'm in those situations, I know I should pray. I just don't know how. I don't even know what to say. And sometimes that's, that's right. You know, we, we think about the groanings that, that um, Paul talks about, that our spirit groans and God understands that. But I think Jesus teaches us how to pray. Let me give you six characteristics of Jesus' prayer that I think we can use to help us understand how to pray, especially in dark times. First, he prays privately. It says he, he moved away about a stone's throw. I'm sure he prayed with the disciples at times. But here he separates himself and he spends time alone with the Father. I love that we pray as a church. We pray as a large group. We pray on Sunday evenings. We pray in small groups. But that cannot be the only time and the only place that we pray and the only way that we pray. There are times when I just need someone else to pray for me. I understand that. But there also needs to be time that we spend pouring out our hearts to God. Psalm 62.8, this is a command. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I don't know about you, but I can't pour out my heart when I'm praying with other people. I can with some. And there's times where God gives us the freedom to do that. But, but can we truly pour out our hearts sometimes in those circumstances? I, I don't know that I can. I want to get there, but... I think there's something about private prayer, about praying on our own, where we pour out our hearts to God. We tell Him exactly how we are feeling and what we are struggling with, and we need that. We need to get away. We need to be by ourselves. Do you have consistent time of praying with God alone? That's hard, isn't it? We have to do this, though. We have to separate ourselves from everything and from everyone and pray to the Father. So even think, when can you do that? What, what works in your schedule? You can say, I can make time at this moment to pray. What time of day? Where are you going to do it? How are you going to separate yourself and find time to pray? Jesus prays privately. He prays humbly. He's kneeling, isn't he? He kneels in prayer. This seems, doesn't seem strange to us, but typically the, the posture for prayer was standing with arms lifted. And so Jesus is kneeling in, in humility. There's no right posture in prayer we can pray whenever, we can pray when we're walking, we can pray at any moment, but it's good to get on our knees. It's good to kneel before God in humility and to worship Him. 
Jesus prays humbly. And I think even in this humility, there, there is a sense that, that, that the weight of everything is on him. And he is brought to his knees. He's brought to, to his face. And life humbles us sometimes with the darkness and with difficulty. We need to get on our knees before God. When was the last time that you knelt in prayer? Parents, do we teach our children to kneel in prayer? I think that's something to model. To, to, to say, kids, why don't we pray and let's let's kneel before God. Let's understand who God is. That yes, He is our friend and He is our Father, but He's also a consuming fire that we need to kneel before in humility. Jesus prays privately. He prays humbly. He prays honestly, doesn't He? That's an honest prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Talks about the removing of the the cup. This is the the cup of God's wrath. It's imagery that's used in the Old Testament. Let me give you just one example so you kind of get a flavor of of what it's like. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8 says this, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Well, that's a picture, isn't it? The foaming cup of the wine of God's wrath, and he makes the wicked to drink that judgment. And Jesus here speaks of the cup of God's wrath. And he knows that as he is moving into his arrest and his trial and his death, that in that, all the physical and the emotional suffering involved in that is him drinking the cup of the wrath of God. And the prospect is daunting to him. There's, there's some mixture of the, the deity of God that he, or of deity of Jesus that he is God and the humanity that he is as we sang, he is son of God, he is son of man, and there's some mixture happening at this moment where Jesus is is distressed, he is in agony, the text says, about what is facing him in this moment. He knows the plan of God. He knows what is going to happen. John 12, 27, he says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so even in the heart of Jesus, we see this, I know, God, that this is what has to happen. This is what is going to happen. But I want to say, save me from it. Take the cup away. There there is anguish that is going on here in the heart of Jesus. And he honestly pours out his heart to God. When you pray, how honest are you with the Father? Jesus knows. He is God, and yet he comes and says, God, take this cup from me. I'm in agony over this. Do we share our heartaches with God? Do we wrestle with God? I think all the prayers in Scripture, and and you look through the Psalms, they give us the freedom to say what we're feeling to pour out our hearts to God and say what is hard and what is difficult and what we don't understand and that God seems like he is absent. He gives us the freedom to say that and it's good to say that and then we follow it up because Jesus prays humbly but then he prays submissively. I think that's the next thing. He prays submissively. He submits to the will of the Father. He says, if this cup can pass, let it pass. But if not, 
I will submit to the will of the Father. He trusts that the Father will do what is best. And we can pour out our hearts to God. We can ask for whatever we want. But there's also that moment where we submit to His plans. And we submit to Him even if it means that darkness is going to reign. How did the Father answer this prayer? Father, if you can, will you let this cup pass? He doesn't, does He? The cup of the wrath of God does not pass. It is not. He says, if it is possible. If you are willing, maybe is, is right. That, that's the phrase, right? If you are willing, remove this cup. Is God able to remove the cup? Yes. But is He willing? No, because this is the only way. There's no other way of salvation except for Christ to take the sins of the world upon Himself as the sinless Son of God and to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. There's no other way for us to be saved. It has to happen. And so the prayer of Jesus is not answered in that sense. And the answer that comes is not that the cup passes, but what is it? That an angel comes. There appears an angel from heaven strengthening him. I think that's comforting. That God may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will be with us. He will strengthen us. He will comfort us. He will even send angels to strengthen us. We submit to the will of the Father, and in doing that, he doesn't forsake us. He comes and He comforts us in the darkness. So we, we, we pray privately. We pray humbly. We pray honestly. We pray submissively. And we pray earnestly. In the darkness, we have to pray earnestly. We see Jesus. He's laboring in prayer. It says here, so much so that His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I've heard many explanations for that. I've heard that there is a medical condition that in the midst of great stress that your body, your capillaries will actually cause your, you to, to sweat blood. I think that's a possibility of what he's saying here. I also think it's possible that this is a, a poetic language to say that his sweat was, was dripping and it was like drops of blood. That's how much agony he was in. Whatever's going on here, that's the picture. It's that he is praying earnestly, and he is in agony. Don't forget, this is the suffering of Christ too. It begins here, I think. We always go to the cross, but there is suffering that is happening in the heart and even in the physical body of Jesus. He prays earnestly. I read that and I wonder if I've ever prayed earnestly in my life. I've ever prayed like that, poured out my heart to God like that, been that honest with God, wrestled with God in prayer in that way. Have I lingered in prayer long enough, pleaded with the Father long enough to, to feel that and then to be comforted by Him? I, I think we don't labor in prayer because we are inconsistent. I think that's the last characteristic that I would say of how we should pray like Jesus, and that's consistently. This is not the first time we've seen Jesus pray, is it? The, the whole ministry of Jesus is filled with Jesus coming and praying, retreating and praying alone. And this is his custom to come here. I don't think just to come to the Mount of Olives, but to come to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and to pray with the disciples. I think that's the custom. That's what he did. He always was retreating and praying alone. His entire person lived in dependence on the Father. And we cannot pray like Christ in the darkness 
if we are inconsistent in our prayer lives. You, you can't get there. You know, I want to know how to pray. I don't want to learn how to pray. Just like I want to know how to play the guitar. I don't want to learn how to play the guitar. I just want to pick it up. And I want to be able to play like Eric Clapton, you know. But I don't want to learn because that's work. That's time. That's energy. You know, that's every day picking it up. And, and with prayer, it, it's not something that we just, in the moment, we know how to pray. We're able to do it. We, we don't know how to pray. We learn how to pray. We walk through difficulty and we learn how to do it. And just like learning an instrument, consistency is better than large, large times of practice. That consistency over the long period of time. If you want to learn an instrument, everyone will say, listen, don't practice for one hour on Saturday. Practice for 10 minutes on Monday, 10 minutes on Tuesday, 10 minutes on Wednesday. That's how you learn. It's got to be something constant in us. And I think that there is something about prayer that if we are constant in it, we grow in it. So let me challenge you. I don't know if you have consistent prayer time, but let's make it real simple. Five minutes. So five minutes a day, seven days in a week, 35 minutes. We've all got 35 minutes, right? We've all got 35 minutes. When are you going to do it? I, I'll give you permission to get your cell phone out right now if you want. Put it in your calendar. Get some sort of reminder that goes off at, you know, when, whenever the convenient time for you is to say, now's the time to, to just pause and five minutes. And we'll, we'll, we learn. Five minutes turns into ten minutes. We find that, you know, this isn't long enough. I need, I need more time in prayer. I'm going to set aside two times. We become like, like Daniel and we say, you know, it's morning, it's, it's afternoon, it's evening. I need to be praying to God consistently. You know, there's other faiths that show us up in this, aren't there? And it can become rote and we can, we can say, well, that's just, you know, routine and that's just, you know, part of the culture and they don't really pour out their heart. Well, I don't know. I mean, let's think about that. We can be disciplined to pray consistently. That we will grow. We can't know how to pray in the darkness, in the difficult times, if we have not consistently prayed. Jesus tells us here, in the darkness, we need to pray. And he shows us we do it, we do it privately. We do it humbly. We do it honestly. Honest prayer. We, sub, we do it submissively. We pray earnestly, and it has to be done consistently. Man, prayer is always convicting, isn't it? Every single time. But let's think about, think about even our practical ways, time and place, and when it will work for you to make time to be with the Father. Let me just touch briefly on 47 through 53. I think there's just chaos that sort of breaks out in the garden. It says in verse 47, while he was still speaking. So as Jesus is giving the second command to the disciples, there comes this crowd with Judas leading the way. And, and things just sort of go haywire for a little bit, it feels like. And I think in this we see how we should not respond to the darkness. One would be to oppose Christ. So we've got Judas who has betrayed him, and we've got the chief priests and, 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 um, and the, the leaders and the elders who are opposing him. In the darkness, people can say, well, I'm, I'm out of this. I think that's part of what Judas's response was. If this is where the path leads, I'm getting my 30 pieces of silver, and I'm getting out of this. I'm getting what I can, and I'm opposed to Christ. 
Sometimes that's how people respond when life gets dark. We say, they say, God is not here. And maybe that's how you've responded. You said, he's absent and forget this. I reject God. I reject his existence. I am opposed to him. That's one way to respond. I pray that that wouldn't be the way you respond. Another way would be to panic. And I think that's what happens with the disciples. They just, they have no idea what to do. They don't oppose Jesus, but they just sort of panic in the midst of the situation. They see what's about to happen. It says that. They they see what's about to happen and say, Jesus, should we strike with the sword? And Peter says, I'm not asking any questions. I'm just going for it. And he strikes the the servant's ear and, and cuts it off. They're not prepared. They have no idea what to do with this. They were sleeping instead of praying. They're not ready for what for the darkness that's come. And they're totally confused. That's sometimes what we do, isn't it? When darkness comes, we panic. And we, 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 we resort to our own ideas. Well, what we need to do is strike with the sword, whatever it might be. But we don't go the way that Christ tells us to go. We don't go in prayer. We, we try to come up with ways to get out of the darkness on our own. So Jesus gives us a couple more ways to respond to the darkness. Just briefly, the first, I think, is to show grace to everyone. (laughs) When things fall apart around us, we can begin to strike out at other people and blame them. But Jesus models that we love others, even in the midst of difficulty, and even our enemies, even those that are coming up against us. He shows grace. This man whose ear is cut off, what does Jesus do? Reaches out, heals his ear. Can you imagine? What's this guy thinking? He's in the group that has come to arrest Jesus, and now he's just been healed by Jesus. I'd love to know that guy's story. I hope he's in heaven, (laughs) that his heart was turned by the compassion of Christ. Isn't that a, a great testimony in the midst of darkness, that we don't lash out at people? We don't go towards them in violence. We don't blame everyone else for what's going on, but we show kindness. We show love. We show trust. We show grace, even when things are difficult. When times are hard, we can get angry, right? And we we got to find someone to blame. And Peter says, it's this guy's fault, the servant. He probably doesn't even want to be there, maybe. And he gets his ear cut off. And Jesus says, this isn't how we work. We show mercy. We love our enemies. So the, these ways we pray, we show grace to all. And then the last one, we trust God's plan and power. In the darkness, we trust God's plan and power. Everything's going on here. Judas is betraying. Chief priests are opposing. The disciples are panicking, trying to take things into their own hands. But what is Jesus doing? Jesus is fully resting in the power and the plan of God. I love this. Jesus' theology, <laughs> it has room for darkness to reign, for evil, evil people to be in control, and yet for God to be completely sovereign. And he holds on to that in the midst of this. This is your hour. But it's only your hour because my Father has deemed that it is your hour. And he is in control. He trusts this plan of God. And even in the midst of that, I love he speaks with authority. These guys are coming to arrest him, and he calls them out for being cowards. He says, you came to me, you come into me like a robber. You come in with swords and clubs. I was with you in public every day. You could have taken me any time you wanted to. But this is your hour. You've come in darkness. You've come in deception. He calls them out, as it were, in that moment. He exposes their deception. He exposes their wickedness. We can trust God, even in darkness, even in in difficulty, even in in the pain. I was so struck by this um, 
this picture of of you know this the 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 cowardly crowd and the the violence of of everything that's going on I, I tried to put it into some sort of you know poetry this one doesn't rhyme so just maybe this helps us get a picture for what's going on let me just read this and help us meditate maybe the sound of footsteps broke the silence of prayer as cowards came in the night to snuff out the light of truth the betrayer drew near with a deceptive kiss, mercifully stopped by a question from Christ. With a kiss, Judas, you would betray me? Panic-stricken, the disciples grasped the hilts of swords, striking in a futile attempt to push against the will of the Father that Jesus had just submitted to and the power of darkness that was being allowed to reign. Blood was spilt as a blade struck the ear of one of his arresters, but a touch of grace from the one who had the authority to give life and healing and who was now willfully submitting himself to the hands of those who would take his life, brought healing in the blackness of the garden of prayer. All these dichotomies that are going on, this amazing thing that Christ is doing in this moment. And just in, in closing, think about this with me for a minute. I, I can't help but wonder in this moment in the garden if this is sort of where everything starts and Jesus in this moment becomes the sin bearer. I don't know that we can know this for sure, but there's something that happens here where he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. Remember, this is what the, all of Isaiah 53, 12 says. He quotes that back in in. Um, in verse 37, this is what Isaiah 53, 12 says. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Is this where Christ takes on the sin of the world? As he enters into the trials, he enters in as Jesus, who is completely blameless. But does he also enter in as Jesus, who is bearing the sins of of the world on his shoulders. What happens in the garden at this moment? I think it's a mystery. I think it reminds us that Jesus is suffering for our salvation even here. That in many ways, maybe this is the beginning of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, that he who knew no sin became sin. Maybe in this moment became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes on our guilt, takes on our shame in this moment, so that we can take on his righteousness and know his salvation. We must be prepared for darkness. It's coming. We pray in the midst of it. We pray with faith. We show love. We show kindness to all. We don't lash out in violence. We don't trust the means of this world or ourselves. We trust Christ. We trust God's plan. We trust His power. We know what He knows what He's doing. We can have confidence that whatever darkness is coming, He is in control. And I'll tell you how we can have that confidence. Because Jesus could have that confidence in the darkest hour, not simply of His life, but of all of human history. When human beings decided that they were going to snuff out the light of the world. That they were going to kill the one who had come to save them. They were going to kill the God that created them. And if God can take this the ultimate wickedness of all of human history, if he can take that and turn it for the greatest good, 
then whatever we're walking through, whatever darkness is there, we can trust that He will turn it for good. We can come to Him in prayer, we can pray honestly, and we can submit to Him and know that He will do what is right. We can love others in the midst of it, knowing that God is working out good. We can trust that He is in control. We can trust His plan. We can trust His power. We can do it all for our good and for for His glory, only in the strength that He gives us. Take a moment with me and just pause and let's let's reflect on what we've seen in the, God's Word this morning. And I'll close this in prayer. Jesus, you are our great high priest. We can come to you and know, Lord, that you you can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities because you were tempted in all ways like we are. You went through the trials that we go through, the difficulties that we face, Lord, the, the, the times where we, we don't see you, the times where we are frustrated and we are scared and you seem absent and darkness is reigning and you are seeming to fight against us. Lord, you know those feelings and so we can come to you knowing that you understand. So Lord, we do that now. Help us, Father, to not think it's strange when darkness comes, but to be prepared. Help us to be people who pray, God, who don't try to do it all on our own, but who fall on our knees and submit to you. Let us not be those that lash out in anger at others just because things are going poorly, but to know that you are in control even of our enemies. Help us to trust you, Father, to see your power, to see your plan. And even when we can't see it, Lord, to know who you are, that you are good. Lord, thank you for Jesus, that he is the sin bearer, that he has bore our sin for us. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has died to make a, a way for us to be made right with you. We worship you, Jesus, Savior of the world. I pray it all in your name. Amen.